0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is film and music producer Frank Fitzpatrick. But first of all, there's a battle that's raging between the IFPI and YouTube, the IFPI. The IFPI is the International Association of Record Labels, and every year they come out with a number of studies determining how much the industry made where it was made and what countries it was made in so google released a statement that its youtube division and of course google owns youtube saying that it paid 1.8 billion dollars last year to the music industry and in total six billion dollars since it began paying out royalties the ifpi on the other hand says wait a minute that's way way off by our calculations, it's only $856 million. And they should know because they're polling the different record labels. Record labels have no reason to lie about this. Because if it was more money, they'd be happy to say that there's more money being made. After all, they do want to be friends with YouTube, and YouTube really isn't making it easy. So as a result, what that comes out to is about $1 per user per Per year that accounts for the money that YouTube is paying out on the other hand there are 272 million paid subscribers to streaming services and that accounts for about $20 per year just last year alone it was 5.6 billion that was collected just from streaming services the record labels call this the value gap and it's a really big point of contention for everybody in the music business the other thing about YouTube is they didn't really give any methodology as to how all of this was computed. So they say there's $1.8 billion that they paid out, but they don't say how it was collected, where it went to. So it could be just a figure that's pulled out of thin air. More than likely, it's a fudged figure. But one thing that we do know is that 47% of of the time that people spend on YouTube, they spend listening to music and 35% of those people say they won't subscribe to a streaming service because YouTube is free. So this turns out to be why the music business really doesn't like YouTube. There's a lot of people getting a lot of free music. And in the end, it's the record labels, it's the publishers, it's the songwriters, and the artists that are really taking a beating here. So let's hope that this changes sometime soon. It's better to get paid than not to get paid, but on the other hand, everybody wants their fair shake. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to the questions at BobbyOwnerCircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at Courses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to HitmakersClub.com to learn more. Now, you may or may not know that there are restrictions on rosewood. If you're a guitar player or a violinist or anybody that uses a stringed instrument that has used rosewood in the past, you know that that's a problem right now because there's a 2017 international trade law that was passed in order to save rosewood from illegal logging in tropical rainforests, mostly in Africa and Asia. Now, it turns out that most of this illegal logging was actually going to Chinese factories that were making luxury furniture, and not too much was being used by the music business. So, it winds up that there's an import restriction on Rosewood and an export restriction on finished products that contain rosewood as well which means that guitar companies that have rosewood fingerboards for instance they can't ship their product out to outside clients. Plus they can't import it to use the rosewood fingerboards that everybody so loves. Now all this is a result of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora SITES for short and it's all part of wildlife smuggling this is just a small part of all this it protects 300 species of rosewood that's using guitars and violins and xylophones and even bagpipes manufacturers have lost millions of dollars in all of this however the good news is sites just had a conference where they considered easing restrictions for instrument makers in particular they found that using rosewood in musical instruments is not detrimental to rosewood forests, contrary to popular belief. So there's no resolution yet. That being said, the process has started to ease those rosewood regulations, which is good news for stringed instrument manufacturers and good news for musicians as well. My guest today is Frank Fitzpatrick, who's a multi-platinum selling record producer, Grammy-nominated songwriter, social entrepreneur, and award-winning filmmaker. Frank started in the business in concert promotion, but soon became a protege of hit producer Richard Perry. His eyes were always on music for film rather than hit songs, though. He's been quite successful at it, too, with major credits like Friday, The High School Musical, The Larry Sanders Show, Pirates of Silicon Valley, and the Scary Movie franchise, among others. Being socially aware and dedicated to optimizing the human potential, Frank has been a delegate to the Skoll World Forum on Social Entrepreneurship, a columnist for the Huffington Post, and has presented at and helped lead numerous international forums and workshops, including for Facebook, Valley, TEDx, Esalen, the Vatican, Singularity University, Shanghai Academy, and many more. In the interview, we talked about working with the notoriously tough Richard Perry, the future of music for film, working on a video with the Pope and Dalai Lama, and much more. We spoke via Skype from his home in Los Angeles. I know all about your background, but some people who are listening probably don't. So take me back to the beginning, where you started and got in the business.
1: So a little bit on my background, I, um, I grew up in Detroit, big music city, and um was more of a music fan early on to, it was the days of Motown and early rock and roll. And um, so I was exposed, I had five older brothers enjoying the world of music. So I was exposed from, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old to all the top artists of Motown, from The Temptations, Marvin Gaye, to all the, you know, to... Um, and to all the early artists of R&B from Aretha and et cetera. And then to all the early rock and roll that went through Detroit. Detroit was a big rock and roll hub for the U.S. So Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, everybody that was kind of doing the stadium rockers those days. Um, and uh, I, I spent a bit of time on the streets at the age of 12 in Detroit when I was in the midst of a big collapse. And music was what I always called my lifelines. Like if I didn't have music... Um, I don't think I'd be alive today. I, I always really appreciated the value of music beyond um, something more than entertainment. And decided pretty young I wanted to do something with music that could help people and give them you know, inspiration, and motivation, and something to uh, take them through the best of times and the worst of times.
0: You're there in Detroit, and obviously it's a big music town, and every musician I know that grew up in Detroit has deep, deep roots. But it's a long road from Detroit to Los Angeles, so how'd you get there?
1: Yeah, it is. Um, well, I decided, like I said um, pretty early, I wanted to do something in music, so I, I ended up going to college, and... Um, put myself through school at the University of Michigan and, and music was the path I wanted to take. It was one of the top music schools in the country at the time and um, but I also knew I wanted to make a living at it so I got a degree in business and a degree in music and I was promoting concerts and doing radio shows and playing in bands and um, getting degrees in two schools, <laughs> a little bit of an a type A personality and I, uh, at the time I knew I was Either going to kind of follow in the footsteps of making records, kind of you know, in the lines of Quincy Jones, or go to you know that would be West Coast, and New or New York would be East Coast, and kind of go in the lines of George Wien and promote concerts, you know. And uh, I, you know, in addition to all the stuff I was kind of already doing within the throes of the business, you know, producing shows from people like Miles Davis to you know, lots of uh, jazz and um, alternative jazz. Ray Charles to um, early Prince. To um, I uh, I did some work for the some favors for the Pointer Sisters, who were being produced by the time by another Michigan alumni, Richard Perry, big producer at the time. Who was probably the top pop producer at the time. If Quincy was a top R and B producer, and uh, I went out to. L.A. during my senior year. I went to New York to look at jobs with uh, George Ween and company. I went out to L.A. to look at jobs and um, and Richard decided to move me out to L.A. Um, as soon as I graduated. So that was my en- entree to L.A. I packed up my car and and, and drove across the country. It is far. <laughs> yeah. And I uh, thought I'd stay for a year and here I am, you know, 30 something years later.
0: Richard Perry is a pretty good person to learn from, that's for sure. And especially at the time, he was hot.
1: Yeah, he was hot. We were doing the Pointer Sisters breakout LP, which was their launch back into stardom and and, um, kind of crazy stuff like the Julio Iglesias uh, Willie Nelson duets and Diana Ross Willie Nelson duets, that kind of. uh, So it was uh, quite a change for me because I came from the world of, um, you know, Miles Davis, Ornette Coleman, Weather Report, um maybe as pop as i was going at that time was ray charles <laughs> uh, uh, Prince who wasn't that pop um but it, to uh you know to the eight, early 80s and um the the pop r&b crossover of you know pure radio so it was quite a transition and i used to say when i was working at studio 55 planet records you know what, what they would do in hollywood is go back to philly and chicago and memphis and detroit bring out, get all the great musicians bring them bring them out to LA put them into a microwave and put them on vinyl.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let me ask you a um, a Richard Perry question. Ken Scott told me a story about Richard and I just want to see if you saw this. They were doing a, a Harry Nilsson album and Richard apparently really liked to work musicians hard. It was nothing to do 80, 90, 100 takes cuz he felt like after they got tired then they get good again and then they would really get it. But Apparently, where some people have perfect pitch, he had a, a memory for takes and he would sit there and say, okay, take the intro from take number 35 and the first verse from take number 18 and go on and on. And Ken said one day they thought they would see if, if this is really the case. So they took one from take number 55 instead of take number 54 and Richard caught it right away. He said, no, that's the wrong one.
1: Right. Did you ever experience something like that with him? Well, I mean, a couple of those pieces. I mean, one is I think the first session I sat in on with him, they were cutting something for the pointers, and it was um, you know in those days all the demos were live. He would record everything in in th- you know a couple of different keys, and he would record it in a couple of different tempos before he. Huh. <laughs> so, so he was really you know in terms of the hundred takes, he was very particular. And then, but the first session I sat in on. Um, you know it wasn't so easy back then to do that because it was all 20 48 tracks of tape with him um so in the in the first session i sat in on it was it was a four-hour bongo session over them okay yeah non-stop take after take after take after. <laughs> so, wow now he made some great records and everybody has their own approach but it was you know it was just very different than what I was used to, you know. So very- Especially especially that, jazz. That's when that Clark Davis was ever able to get of, of, of Bob Dylan, I should say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
0: Okay. How did you make the transition then from working with Richard to becoming a producer yourself?
1: Well, I think I, I mean, it was a, a bit of a, it was a bit of a little different road than that because I didn't go, I mean, I was trying to write and trying to produce and trying to learn about producing. But when I, I had a shift that was a little different than that because I went out with the intention of becoming a record producer. And I kind of studied and developed my skills, um, that way from the musicianship to the, just the ears and the knowing and kind of following music and working, knowing different artists. But for me, the shift was actually towards film because, um, like I told you the story when I was 12 and I really wanted to do something with music. I, that was also the early 80s were kind of the heyday of um, what we were calling the San Francisco directors at the time. But, um, you know, the Prince uh, for Coppola, Oliver Stone, you know. Um, and I, I wasn't didn't really, I grew up on a lot of music, but I didn't grow up paying a lot of attention to film. And suddenly I found myself in a theater, you know, I think Oliver Stone just re- released the um Fourth of July and and I was watching and and uh and I realized hearing George Delarue's soundtrack score to the movie if how powerful the combination of music and image was. So for me, I it was more of a shift of yeah, I loved making records and I love making music, but if I wanted to have impact on people and reach more people, that I could have a lot more powerful impact by combining the two mediums. So I made a, um, I continue to try to develop my chops as a, you know, budding songwriter and, and a little bit of producing and, and um, but I dove into pretty early on into um, the world of music, film music and and started um, learning as a music editor and started working on shows and got into the union that way. And would write and produce songs in my spare time and work with artists in the, and all the meanwhile working on to learn the language of film and to develop that you know? So I moved into that pretty quickly just because of, I really believed I could have a lot more impact by knowing both mediums.
0: What was your first break in that particular avenue that you were taking?
1: Um, well, it's hard to say what's a break, you know, everything's a st- <laughs> so, Yeah, <laughs> You know, overnight successes are kind of a, a miss, as you know, they're not kind of a misnomer, but, but I think, um, because I had this, I was a little unique in that world because I had this really strong record and music background from the song side. So, as I developed as a music editor, this was kind of in the very early days when there wasn't very many music supervisors. They were kind of an anomaly. There was only a couple of them at the time: um, Joel Sill and, and a couple of other people who were doing it at the time. And um, so, when I when I had these, when I started working closely with the studios and working on films and getting kind of deeper in the trenches and working with some of the big bigger composers like George Delarue and stuff I I kind of had access to both worlds so it allowed me to do two things it allowed me to um, really help directors shape those soundtracks a lot more Um, allowed me to write some of my own music to slip into some of them and eventually um, I think my first break on doing my own soundtrack came out of that work I was you know kind of become the music editor by default, music supervisor (laughs) and, um, you know, support system for the, uh, composer working with everything from the orchestras to the studios that, and I, uh, and I think it was nuns on the run. It was, yeah, the money, you know, with Eric Idle and Robbie Coltrane, a British film that, um, Fox had just picked up as a negative pickup when it was right around the time when Fish Called Wanda came out. They were looking for another film like that to, to break through, and uh, this was a a great rompish co- British comedy. With um, produced, pro- the executive producer was actually George Harrison. <laughs> so, Handmade and,
0: films, right?
1: Handmade films, yeah. So um, Fox got their hands on the f- film, and we started testing it with audiences as we do everything, you know, just test the crap out of stuff and till t- t- the audience ratings go up before you decide what's going to be the final film. And and it had a, you know, a very British look and a very British score. Um, and it made it look kind, to the American audience kind of like this 1970s TV, late t- night TV movie, you know. Um, so I proceeded to, you know, replace the score with a temp score, which, um, and another friend of mine and associate who was working under Joe Roth at Fox at the time recut the first part of the film and between what I did with the music um, and instead of just instead of just uh, pulling in you know existing tracks for a temp score I actually wrote and produced one so in three days or four days or something and and, um, and we raised the audience ratings by 300% whoa so that gave me an open gate to you know, in a good relationship with the director to say, "Hey, you know, can I take a shot at this?" Um, you know, I got an idea what to do and how to make this kind of work in the U.S. audience, and and um, and that's how you know that's how it broke through.
0: Wow, that's a great story. <laughs> because and you know why? Because everybody has their own story about how they kind of broke in, but that's kind of unique in a way because you, you took the initiative on something. Where no one expected you or maybe even wanted you to. Right. And made it work. Okay. You went from there to what? You have some great credits between High School Musical and Larry Sanders and Scary Movie and all those. When did you feel like, okay, I think I got this now. I know how to do this.
1: You know, know, there's two sides of that. Because part of it is, you know, as soon as you think you got it, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah more you think you know the less you know the more you learn the more there is to know so i mean i think as in music if someone anybody's pursuing anything in music i mean you can even reach you know we're going to honor um wayne shorter at his 85th birthday at the kennedy awards um kennedy center awards this year and it's and you know he's a perpetual learner you know so is herbie hancock who's at that you know in 80 now and, and they're just they never stop kind of trying to learn and you know so in terms of that i don't think that I mean, I felt pretty good. You know, I remember standing, uh, you know, the campus at Pepperdine up on the top of that hill looking out at the ocean over Malibu. But well, when I grew up a kid in Detroit, and it was, you know, it was a mess. <laughs> <You know?
0: laughs>
1: standing there after my um, – I don't remember if it was after my first film or after I did Friday, which um, was a big early hit. Um, and I uh, – just going, you know, just for me, it's – I just – you know, just really grateful and just couldn't imagine that I could actually be standing in this place and creating music for a living, you know? I mean, just those those were inconceivable concepts when I grew up, you know? They weren't part of the palette. Yeah. You know, no matter h- how you look at somebody's credits, you know, over 30 year, 35 years, 30 years or whatever, you know, they always there's always spotlights that make it seem like they had a continual success, but it's not, it's like, there's, you know, you crash, you, you know, the, the business was a really competitive business. So you, you make a bit of money, you spend it all trying to stay in the game, <laughs> replacing mm-hmm. equipment, you know, going on again, getting, you know, and then you're going to build yourself back up. You're only as good as you were the last, you know, your last credit in the last six months. I mean, that's the, you know, the game. So, you you know, so, but, um, you know, what I have had is the opportunity to look, um, work with some amazingly talented people from, you know, um, you know, on the comedy side, from people like Gary Shanley to um, Ivan Reitman to um, Jonathan Lynn to many, many, many people on the dramatic film side from Francis Ford Coppola to, you know, many So I've had a chance to learn from and work with a lot of people on the film side and then on the creative side to write and produce with a lot of great artists from, you know, Jill Scott to Anthony Hamilton to um, just. So to me, it's um, I don't I don't you know. I don't know that there's a breakthrough. There is one thing I I, you know, there is a point you kind of realize you got it you know, when you're surrounded by a team of people and you know exactly what to do with the project, you know, you, you, you're sitting around and you know, you can help this director, you know, you can help this studio, you know, you can bring together a team and guide them in a way that's going to deliver um, a really successful product. Um, what I found with myself, because I had to make a decision at some point, I was um, working as an editor for who I mentioned before, George Delarue. And George Delarue was one of the great film composers of our time, um, you know, he was the French Morricone. So, I mean, he's um, did many, many famous films like Platoon and, and uh, Beaches, Harrell, by um, all the Francis Truffaut films, some 250 films before he passed away. And um, so at that time, the big composers, if I was looking at film composing, um, were, you know, John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, <laughs>
0: yeah, you know,
1: yeah. um, George, um, Emilio, and and I was looking at, you know, and I was thinking, you know, I don't, that, I don't, even though I'm classically trained, I don't have those kind of chops, you know. I have this ability to, this really great pop sensibility and record sensibility and, you know, popular music sensibility combined with this in-depth understanding of how the cathartic experience of storytelling works in a film that i learned from the masters like that so i i had decided to put that marry those together and try to and make the contemporary soundtrack you know so i had all these gigs that were insane because i would be the music supervisor and the composer (laughs) and (laughs) and the um you know songwriter and producer on a couple of singles or tracks you know um and putting that all together and um but I loved I think the skill set that I had was just that way to really understand how to where each of those elements did their best service in storytelling and organically fit into the process and how they fit that dramatic arc that lasts ninety minutes or and delivers this cathartic experience to the audience, you know. Right, right. And so that learning thing that I you know, kind of mastering that is something I don't know if I've ever mastered the creation of Great music <laughs> you know, but but that, that kind of relationship to the human psyche um, between music and between storytelling is something that I think I have a pretty strong grasp on
0: you know we passed some emails back and forth before we did this and you mentioned the future of the soundtrack obviously you've thought about this a lot but I've never heard of anybody else thinking about it for the most part people they do it they look back at history but i don't hear of too many people talking about the future and how it might be different so what do you foresee
1: well it's it's here you know um you're going to have some still some mega sound original soundtracks um on the big films as you're seeing now with um you know stars born and and you you know we have a few along the way and then you see um obviously uh you know the new Queen movie will be Bohemian Rhapsody, will be one, but it'll be most, that will be all pre-existing songs. You know? so,
0: yeah.
1: But for the, you know, so for the big studios, you know, I mean, you're when you get these movies that are budgeted over 100 million dollars, I mean, you're five million dollars into the music, you know. For an independent filmmaker, um, and for the average film, you know, the soundtrack market is very soft. Um, compilation records. Are hard to make. They don't just—they don't exist well in the marketplace, just for a number of reasons. Because of the, people can get the individual tracks now, and because of the multiple platforms, and if you have something that was pre-existing, it's going to exist somewhere else besides your record. Yeah. <laughs> so and and people are not buying CDs as much, and and they're and as you know, and and um and even the download world is starting to go away. So so wh- where do we end up? Well, we end up with um, the streaming world, which is um you know, good and challenging another way, but one opportunity that it provides um, for filmmakers, and I can give you an example because I'm just, I'm doing releasing an independent film now um, where, I, where I'm where i taking advantage of this. So maybe I'll just talk about it through the example.
0: Yeah, please. I was going to ask you about it next anyway.
1: <laughs> okay, so the film a romantic comedy um, called Love Jacked, and, and the director he wanted to have kind of a timeless soundtrack. So he has a, and he has a real affinity to classical song, R&B songs. So we, we have tracks from, you know, the temptation, Stevie wonder, you know, and, uh, up to Bruno Mars, which isn't, you know, such an old classic, but, you know, Dionne Warwick and, and more, um, that, that he wanted to have throughout the film. So here I am, I go and I wrote and produced the singles and I was, the you know, executive music producer and, and wrote in the themes for the score and, and, and kind of did it you know was the head of music as because there's no studio with a head of music and one of the exact producers on the film but here i am shorthanded because i don't have us you know i got a couple of singles i want to leverage i don't have a soundtrack meaning in the old days i wouldn't have a soundtrack because in the old days you have these great big songs that you put in the film but you don't have soundtrack rights so you're not going to get the rights the soundtrack rights that's that stevie wonder song or that Tim. Asian song that earth wind and fire song um even if you had the money to pay for them it wouldn't do you any good because people could get the songs everywhere else so they wouldn't buy them off your soundtrack anyways yeah, <laughs> so you yeah. promotional tool for everybody else and and then i and then i have these you know cut you know like three original songs that are just sitting out there by themselves and because it's an independent film i don't have major artists on them you know, i don't have a jennifer hudson or somebody on the single that's gonna drive it so so With streaming, now suddenly I have this chance where, okay, I can build a soundtrack. I can offer it on, you know, this particular one is on the four major streaming platforms, the biggest platforms, Um, and I can offer it as a playlist. And I don't have to own the rights to those songs to put on the soundtrack. And I can give that soundtrack away fundamentally for free, all the fans of the film as a promotional tool for the film and as a giveaway kind of a, you know, to carry the life of the film forward in the minds of the viewers, like a soundtrack would, it doesn't become a big income um, play like you would with a traditional old record, like, you know, with like the Friday soundtrack where it earned more money than the movie. <laughs> you know, but, yeah. but it does come in terms of somebody being able to have a great soundtrack. So we have this great you know, sort of big, chillish soundtrack, you know, with all these classic R&B hits um, and major artists. And then I, you know, could implant into that or embed into that three singles with newer, kind of lesser-known artists um, and and uh, offered on all the major platforms as the soundtrack. Suddenly, we have a soundtrack.
0: Just as a playlist, you're saying?
1: Yeah, but it's just... But soundtrack albums are going to be. Yeah. You know, the playlist, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, a few people will download, but, you know, another another year or two, you know, 90% of them will be listening to them on prepaid services, you know? Yeah. So it creates this opportunity, um, and it's funny, I was doing it, and we were getting ready to, we were, you know, doing a premiere on the film, and then um, Spotify just ran an article, or somebody ran an article about Spotify in, in uh, the um, Wall Street Journal saying Spotify is coming up now, with the new invention of the soundtrack, the playlist soundtrack, and releasing the first film to ever do a playlist soundtrack, you know, coming in. it's I don't know when it's forthcoming, but it's um so um but it is it it's just you're gonna it's just a complete game shift because it's those you're able to do that because those rights are already owned and and um res- re- respectively paid on the back end to the from the the DSPs, you know, the providers, you know, sure. to, the, to the artists. So you're not having to, to go on and own and license those rights, you know?
0: Yes, but you can't make any money from it either, though. That's the downside.
1: Yeah, well, the truth is, um, if you were to pay for those rights, you wouldn't make any money off it anyways. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, I can make, you know, I make money off, so... I mean, it. You don't make any money off the playlist, but you do make money off of whatever you have on that playlist. So right now, the the opportunity for the singles game is to be on the most popular playlist. That's yep. that's it. Like you have a good R&B track, you want to be on Spotify's hits of R&B playlist. That's the only way you're going to get enough play to get enough streaming income to make it worth it, right? Yeah. So in this way, I can take these unknown, lesser-known songs. If this playlist, if I can get popularity around among the playlists of the soundtrack, then all the songs on that gain popularity. So it allows you to put new songs, new artists, into and surround them by major artists in a way that you can help them gain popularity and get popularity to those singles. It's
0: guilt by association.
1: Those new things that I own But uh, it's, you know, it's
0: Okay, that's cool. I I don't ever remember anybody talking about that. But it makes perfect sense. Because uh, what other way is there?
1: (laughs) Right. Well, well, there's still the old game. You can still, you know, studios still release records. Most of them release them anyways. But it's usually because they've licensed and own the sounds and put them on that right. And then one of their all you know, most of their income is going to, most of it's already paid for um by them because they own the content and then they get residual back-end income off of whatever streaming dollars come in as small as they might be it's just added adds to the pot for them
0: you know? you know cds are still around and it's still almost a billion dollar business in the united states alone i just wrote a post an article on our music 3.0 blog the other day and it was about the fact that believe it or not there's still a big demand, especially for the hits. If you happen to have a hit album or you're a hot artist and you're coming out with something, the CDs are so hot that they can't keep them in stock. Retailers can't actually keep them in stock. And and there were four artists that over the last month that couldn't get stock to go day and date or they sold out immediately and everything went on back order. Who would have thought?
1: Right, right.
0: Now, in the grand scheme of things, there's only, you know, we're only talking about 100,000 CDs, but that's still real money. That's a whole lot more than you make on a lot of streams.
1: It's, it's a lot better money than you'll ever make on streaming, as, as is downloads. Yeah. You know, so downloads are still here. Both those games are much more expensive to play because, you know, you don't see a lot of, um, like, you'll see that among the top sellers.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I don't know. You could probably say what percentage of those that billion dollars is is top selling artists you know and i would but it's probably 80 percent at least right yeah i would say so that makes sense because you've got so much invested into them yeah you can play that game because the stocking game of inventory you know all the returns cost at this point and and um you know where you have to be to be except you know um to be in the cd game which are many less distributors you know physical distributors so that that exists but for um you know, there's kind of this gap in between the, in the indie artist who's selling CDs full price at their gig, which I recommend that anybody do. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Because it's a great way to make money. You know, and, and then the big artists. So if you're in this in this range of selling, you know, twenty five thousand records, fifty thousand records on an expensive record, where you've had to hire producers and engineers and multiple artists, and you know, you got a lot of people to pay um, that's a tough game because that's a, it's a tougher space for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about beyond entertainment, the power of music, because you're quite an activist. That's always been a big part of your life, making the world a better place, especially through music. So can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. yeah, Um, a couple of things. I mean, you know, I, um, somebody asked me several years ago, I, I, I made this transition into being, calling myself more of a social entrepreneur than an entertainer, you know? yeah. um, about a dozen years ago and I, I was a little burned out in Hollywood and I started looking at why I got into the music and film game and, and um, realized that it was to have positive impact on the world and just decided to kind of take a step back and see how I could make sure I was shaping what I was doing to do specifically that. Um, and, you know, somebody around that time was asked me, you know, don't you get excited to wake up in the morning, waking up in the morning knowing you get to write music or work on a film or do that. And I go, no, what actually gets me really excited now is knowing the potential of what we can do in the world with those tools. And doing that because, um, I mean, music is is you know I mean I don't want to be cliche and every you know but it is just one of the most powerful transformative tools that we have on the planet that's totally underused in the areas where it can be most powerful like it's beyond entertainment so um, I'm part of the faculty of Singularity University Exponential Medicine Conference and I speak about music and health and and have kind of done a lot of deep studies into that how music can transform. Uh, and does transform health and the potential of what we can do. Everything from cancer to Alzheimer's dementia to um, you know child development. And then I've, I've hosted and facilitated a lot of think tanks around the world of bringing music and media into education and how it affects the learning process and and uh, eventual success of the of the of the child in their later life. Um, so I just. I'm just, yeah, I'm just impassioned by that. And, and just, it was never my intention to like go out and be, John Mc, John McHugh interviewed me for one of his shows once and he's, you know, he called me the music minister. So it was never, <laughs> never, never my intention to become the music minister, you know, but I just, in as I was actually doing my work as a social entrepreneur and, you know, seeing what, people like Gates and Jeff skull and people are doing in the world. And I just, and then what was happening in music education, just music was so out of the mix. And there was such a limited scope on, you know, that music is either a commodity or a source of entertainment. And beyond that, it's just the charity model. Um, and I just, you know, I'm committed to shift that perception and to bring it into the places that we need it most and whatever, whatever that takes. And I, um, you know, I've, speak around the world about it from Ted talks to, you know, different platforms. And I've done a lot, you know, I'm just finishing up a, a you know, a book, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, you know, the process of that on, on, you know, to get out on it and, uh, um, to, you know, have developed uh, pilot programs and tools for curriculums for at risk kids and, and, uh, technologies to deploy it across, you know, um, the learning about it across you know large scale systems and and so it's it's uh I know you're committed to it too. A lot of us are and and mm-hmm. and um you know and it's still it still amazes. It never ceases to amaze me two things with how much we can do with the power of music to help people, one and two. How much um, there is in a gap of that understanding in the general populace and the people who would typically fund those areas of need you
0: know yeah yeah i agree and i know you're trying very hard to bridge that gap
1: like it's you know it's, it takes all of us man. it's not me i'm just i'm just a catalyst you know i'm just the spark in the fire so i'm just trying to <laughs> 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 okay
0: frank last question for you you've been an entrepreneur for a long time so this is perfect for you what's the best piece of business advice that either somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned yourself along the way?
1: Well, generally I would say, find a way to make money and then <laughs> 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 and, and keep doing the things you love too. <laughs> but, but, huh. but, um, you know, I think that it's really important. You know, I stopped looking at music as a standalone commodity probably 15 years ago. I mean, um, because the, Continue devaluation of it as a standalone commodity is is you know going to continue towards zero for the for the major part. There'll always be money made in it. So so the key is really to look at music within the context of something that it makes stronger. You know, so um, whether it's for film, whether it's for a campaign, whether it's to build your brand. If you're an artist, you have to kind of think of yourself not just by the music you write, but as the music that creates the image of who you are
0: <laughs> yeah
1: you know so just really music is a as an like the secret sauce that you put into whatever you're making and not the not the main ingredient yeah yeah i think we do a real disservice by by focusing on the traditional ways of the music business you know all we keep doing is coming up with new platforms and new technologies to sell music in exactly the same way
0: <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
1: entertainment so if you were you know if i was to advise larry page or one of the guys that you know heads of google on where they should go with music instead of google play i would say go specifically in the music and you know the next level of the music industry will be healthcare. yeah you know um because it's valued at a whole different level so there's another thing about like when you when you say you've made it you know um and I think to me I, I don't like look at goals of making it so much as like once you know, once I've got my Grammy, once I've got my <laughs> I can't remember, once I have a hit record. It's it's really about levels mastery. So you know, finding something in the craft that you or the use of the craft that you can master and when you feel that you've been able to apply that mastery in a way that's effective. So I'll give you an example. I did a project um, but a year and a half ago for, um, uh, Pope Francis and the Dalai Lama and, and some of the spiritual leaders gathered together on the, as part of the, um, and slavery campaign to stop human trafficking and slavery. And, and, um, so the goal was to create something. It was a collaboration with, uh, one of the world leading humanitarian photographers, Lisa Christine, um, who's that movie, um, Sold was made about. I don't know if you ever mm. saw it.
0: Phenomenal yeah, movie. yeah.
1: <clears throat> And uh, so the goal is how could you take if you had three minutes and you had a room of all the world leaders who are about, you know, and these are world leaders that are very um, strategic thinkers, not, not creative thinkers, you know, yeah. uh, judges, prosecutors, lawyers, you know, you know um, political figures that are trying to solve this huge horrendous problem of human trafficking and slavery in a room together. And you had three minutes with them. What could you do with music and and image that could make a difference? So that's where the subtle levels of kind of mastery is. How do you really learn to get inside of the psyche of the listener and the viewer in a way that transforms their, you know, their heart space, their thinking, their consciousness... So that anything that takes place in the moments thereafter um, comes from a completely different way, place. And so that's, you know, that's where I um, love the space in which, you know, I love to play and feel like um, we can make a huge difference. So, I mean, I did that. So, you know, I created a piece for them that they, you know, the, that Pope Francis opened the session at the Vatican floor and the open parliament at the House of Lords. and. And I've done the same thing with big film openings in China, you know, and and kind of broken a lot of barriers. Just, I mean, how, you know, taking those skill sets that we've learned to hit 80 million kids when they turn on the TV and make them you know, jump up and down, dance and smile, um, to get into the psyche and physiology of people. And so they shift their beliefs in a positive way without them even knowing it's happening.
0: Steve, Frank, in a good way.
1: When we can do that, I know I've, I've, I've done something.
0: You can find out more about Frank at frankfitzpatrick.com, frankfitzpatrick, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my Inner Circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or... Go to BobbyOwnerCircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, MixCloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, and now on Spotify. At BobbyOwnerCircle.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.